A Gay and a Non-Gay is a podcast from James Barr and Dan Hudson. They're like a lovely little couple, except they're not. Hey, welcome to A Gay and a Non-Gay. I'm James, I'm gay, he's Dan, and he's non-gay. Dan, I got a message on Instagram the other day and it was like, James, you're such an open book. You let all your feelings out. You're not afraid to share yourself with the world, the good, the bad and the ugly. But physically, you only seem to share a heavily filtered version of yourself. Do you think this is down to gay pressures of looking a certain way, a pressure to be flawless and perfect? I feel so seen by that. Firstly, lol at you saying to me, have you seen this message I got sent when I sent it to you and said, shall we talk about this on the podcast? Anyway, no, that didn't. aside. <laughs> anyway, the reason I brought it up was it is something I want to talk about with you at some point, but it, it is kind of relevant to today's guest because we're chatting to someone that is owning every single bit of their truth. And I'm just so in awe of this person. Yes, so today we are joined by award-winning writer George M. Johnson. Uh, He's just brought out a groundbreaking memoir, All Boys Aren't Blue, um, in which they share their memories of growing up black and growing up queer in America. George has written the book They Wished They Had Growing Up, inspired by Toni Morrison's quote, if there's a book you want to read but it hasn't been written yet, then you must write it. We get into so much in this episode with George. They talk about how blackness is inherently queer. We talk about Pose, the Confederacy. We talk about Dolly Parton. There's a lot. There's also some opening the library and some closing the library and a lot of spilling the tea. Here's George. Welcome to a gay and a non-gay. Welcome to the podcast and uh, congratulations on, on the remarkable success of, of your book. I, I think you got a TV deal within like a couple of months of it coming out. Did you know when you were writing it, did you have any idea it was going to turn into this this runaway success? I knew the book would do well, but I didn't think it would do all of this. I, I didn't know that the story was going to become one of those culturally shifting books that, that'll be around for a while. And I only say that because of how people talk about this book. Uh, People don't just talk about it as like a one-off, like, oh, this was a really good book that came out this year. It's become a resource guide and a tool. And for many people, it's become that book that opened up the world in many ways to an existence that's always been here, but hasn't been told quite the way that I told it. I think years from now, this book will still have a significant or be like very significant in the landscape of, of shifting how writing and culture and, and just many things uh, are done in the publishing world. So wasn't expecting that part. You talk in the book about how blackness is inherently queer. So what does that mean? How, how can we explain that? It's pretty simple, right? Black queer people exist. So if we are going to talk about blackness and queer people already exist within that, then it's inherently queer, right? Black queer people are born into being black. Like they, I was born black and I was queer. So inherently a part of blackness is that queerness exists, right? That's just looking at it from an identity level. When you then look at it from a macro level, to be black in this particular world is to exist as queer right? Because queer means simply just means different. And so that is why um, when you think about slavery, that is why we could be looked at as property. That is why we were not looked at as humans. That is why you still have, you know, many uh, white people today, especially in America, who just do not see us. Or when they do see us, they only see us as a threat, right? And so that is queer. 
And that is like to be black is to literally, it is to be queer because the majority looks at you as not them. And they look at you as something that is on the outside of normalcy for them. It was not that far ago that we were dealing with segregation. So again, if you had to segregate based off of the color of your skin, then that meant that the color of your skin was queer to what the norm was. Wow. And so that's what I mean when I say it's inherently queer from an identity level, from a global level, we just are not seen as human in many ways. And we have watched us be dehumanized for centuries. And that is the other part of our queerness. You're so amazing. When I read your book, I thought you were like 50 because I just was like, this guy, this guy knows how to explain things to me that I had never even realized at all about my journey as a queer person. And I'm not black. I've got a privileged white gay life, but I still learn a lot. Um, one of the things you talk about is the language of black femmes and how words like shade, yas and honey child, which was your word from when you were a little boy, I love. Um, they're used by mainstream culture and the heterosexual community gets a bit of a free pass to say these phrases too, because I imagine of shows like RuPaul's Drag Race. I stopped myself using these words a lot at the, the beginning because I was like, I don't know if it's okay for me to be using these words, but then the more and more they get used, they become almost everyone's words. So how do you feel about shows like that and, and these words becoming mainstream? Black queer people, we know, we've always been the, the creators of culture and we have to sometimes remind people of that. No, we, we've been doing this for much longer than y'all have been doing this. Um, even when you look at films and just what femininity is hyper femininity is black trans people created that waistline bust line hips accentuated eyelashes that was not a cis cis women were taught to be docile and taught they couldn't even wear pants that was trans people <laughs> who were like well i'm wearing dresses and we're gonna and and femme you know femme black and brown queer people who you know, ballroom culture, which has existed for a century. Like, you know what I mean? And so when I see it go mainstream, the words, the language, the lingo, the fashion, the style, the everything, the only thing that bothers us, because for us, we know we created it. It's just one, you know, a lot of times we don't get the credit for the creation of it. And two, we still can't safely do it. I don't remember what magazine, but it was like Harry Styles. They were basically trying to say like Harry Styles was not the first, but like the main mainstream person like to be like gender fluid in clothing. And how do you just ignore all of these decades and centuries of black queer people, black femme men who have dressed in, in women's clothing? Like, it existed before Harry Styles, you know what I mean? And so it's just like, that's what, we, but that's what we constantly see. And then the problem becomes the person who gets heralded has no idea about where they even got it from. So they just run with it and get praised for it. Like, How do you okay. feel then about Dan, non-gay, using the phrase, the library is open in our podcast? Are you okay with that? <laughs> so your boyfriend would be one man. <clears throat> Next okay. up. The library is open. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's that. That's funny. I mean, that's not bad. I mean, I have heterosexual friends who are who are men that do use our terms. I think the biggest thing is though that those men in particular also are very, very like protecting of of our, us, right? I mean, I think it's just like um, when you have cis people who are shifting to start to use their pronouns more. 
cis people who have stopped using husband and wife and start to started using the term partner. They don't do it necessarily like to be like us. I think what it is is that because they are the dominant culture, they're like, if we shift the language, then the language shifts. And then we don't have to worry about husband and wife anymore. We don't have to worry about, I think the issue comes in is when you use the lingo and you use the terms, but then you don't give a damn about the people who created it and, and, and are harmed when they use it. I think that's the problem. And Dan's been yeah. to a lot of libraries, so I think he understands the culture. <laughs> I open a lot of libraries on this podcast. I spill a lot of tea. <laughs> it's just like we have a lot of heterosexual people who watch Pose now. And, you know, I think that has opened up a lot of people to part of our world, which again is why like I'm excited to be creating my own TV show because it will also open up people to to our existence in a, from a different perspective and a different lens. But once you open up people to that world, you have a little bit of an expectation that people are going to then start to want to participate in that world some. Like I said, and it's, I don't think the issue is about the participation because we've been very lenient to let people into the world. I think the issue becomes when you take it and you run with it. A lot of designers, famous designers used to go to balls and watch the costumes that the black queers were making and then go and instill the ideas and make all of these fashion shows in Paris and Milan and Fashion Week. And they were literally coming from things that kids had created in ballrooms. Wow. Not enough is said about that. And so that's where the problem comes in, right? It's like supporting is one thing, using it can get tricky, but then it's like when you use it and you don't pay homage, nor do you at least platform the people who created it, that's where the problem comes in. A gay and a non-gay. There's a lot of powerful moments in this book um, and the things that you're talking about today that sort of hit me hard. You, you talk about growing up different and when you're different, you're always told that there's something you aren't allowed to do, the microaggressions. I had one of those literally yesterday when I was told not to squawk on the radio uh, because the boss might not like it. And I just immediately was like, well, that's that seems homophobic. And it's hard to differentiate whether that is homophobic or not. But I do squawk. I'm like, yes! And so that's just sort of part of the way I communicate. But yet society wants us to be a certain version of ourselves. Yeah, it's tough, right? Like there are times where I know I am pushing too far. Well, I don't feel like I'm pushing too far where others feel like I am pushing too far. I typically feel like I'm, I'm just being me, but there are definitely times where my fraternity, people who know me, they cringe because they're like, oh, this is like a lot for us to take in. And then on the other side, when you are the person, it's tough to feel like so different, even still, no matter how large I get or how many followers I get or whatever, like when I enter spaces that are still predominantly heterosexual, it feels awkward and it's going to, especially if my presentation doesn't match the performance of man. So if I do start to present differently, it, it, you can feel it, you know, like you instantly feel it. And so you kind of, again, have to make that decision. Am I doing what's best for me or am I doing this for the appeasement of others? A lot of times, especially being black and queer, when you're doing what's best for you, it can be isolating. And so a lot of people would rather not have that isolation. So I think it, it's, it's tough. And people do demonize you for doing too much or could you tone it down or could you be less flamboyant or and it's like well no like people should be allowed to be who they are right nobody ever tells the hyper masculine people to be less masculine nobody ever tells them that but everybody I mean, tells the hyper feminine people to be less feminine right i and might so tell someone like, to stop being too masculine to be fair i mean and we will but overall society loves that they love explosions they love muscle they love aggression, but the reverse of that they hate. 
You talk about um, sororities in your book, which is, from a British perspective, is interesting because we, like, we don't really have them. And the sort of version of them that we have over here isn't good. It's just where incredibly posh, privileged people go to like smash up restaurants before they become prime minister and that kind of thing. <laughs> so it was really interesting to, to read about um, your experience with, within the, the sorority. How have your brothers from the sorority reacted to, to your success? It's so funny because you keep saying brothers in sorority and sorority is the women's org. Fraternity. Oh, is it? <laughs> Fraternity is... Dan's obviously um... never watched like hot frat boy videos on the internet like I have. <laughs> It's been an interesting journey. I mean, it's it's tough for them because, you know, when you think about fraternities, uh, you think about this image of masculinity and I am not that person. I may look it at times, but, you know, usually by the time I'm talking and the time I'm, you know, speaking about things or how I dress and how I walk, and how I just live my life, um, again, it pushes the line at times uh, into femme. And so it's tough for them because you know, it's like, it's one thing when it's on a micro level and we're at conventions or at meetings and it's, and I'm there. It's another thing when I am becoming the most known member of the org and I am becoming the face of the org in many ways, right? Or at least one of the most known faces in our org in many ways. That is when it starts to bother. Once George becomes this person and, you know, right now, you know, I have a decent sized following, but you know, TV, more books, more whatever. And I end up with, let's say millions of followers. And I'm this person now who has the most followers in my organization. They have to deal with it because everything I do is attached to it, right? And so that's become the tough thing for them is because like they are so desperate to hold on to the ideology of man looking like one thing and masculinity and chivalry and like all of these things. And now you have a person who is not that, who is the face. So how do you connect those two and how do you 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 make it work? And so I think that's partly where we're at. They've been very supportive so far, but we'll see. We'll see what happens as, as things continue to grow and manifest and I continue to do more things and talk about more things. So are you now, are you sort of accidentally the the most famous alumni from your fraternity? Is that is that what we're at? I am not the most famous alumni. I think Martin Luther King still takes that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Wow. Um, I'm pretty sure Martin Luther King still takes the, the cake on um, who is the most famous alumni uh, for us. But um, <laughs> I would say in terms of current uh, members of the organization, I am probably one of the more known, probably someone like Barry Jenkins, who, you know, directed Moonlight. He's also a member of my organization. And so, but yeah, I don't think any of us have surpassed uh, Martin Luther King yet. Yet. <laughs> Keyword. Still time. Um, you mentioned Moonlight just then. Your book actually references that in the title, um, All Boys Aren't Blue. The word blue means a lot of things, right? And Moonlight's within that? Uh, yeah. So, you know, Moonlight, I just love the movie. I love Terrell. I love everything that Terrell does for the art for Black art and for Black queer art. I think what I loved about Moonlight was that the word, if I'm not mistaken, the word gay, I don't think was ever even said in Moonlight. And so I think that was part of the beauty of it was because it was like, it really was a movie about masculinity, the struggle of masculinity, not necessarily the struggle, which which is di directly tied into the struggle of identity and, and, and trying to be something that you may not be or trying to be something more because you are fighting against this thing so hard. Yeah, you know, the original name of the play, you know, Black Boys Look Blue in Moonlight, because um, it was a play before it was a movie. Yeah, I just wanted to kind of like add my 
piece to what I feel like, in my personal opinion, was a movie that opened up pathways for us to be able to at least start to have the conversation. Um, I'm not sure if you get to an all boys aren't blue if we didn't have a moonlight first to open some pathways for the discussions to start to happen around it. You know, unfortunately, and I, I do talk about this, I think a byproduct of Moonlight was that a lot of white queer art got funded. <laughs> I think it opened up a pathway for like those other stories like Love, Simon. Like it just seemed like it was like a huge influx of just like these white queer stories. And it was right like directly after Moonlight. And I just remember seeing it, like, it just seemed like it was like movie or a play or a show or this or a book or, and I was like, they really are taking the space. Oh, we can talk about it. All right, so let's do it. But it wasn't our story. <laughs> so but then you had these black queer stories start to finally come out. And then I got to finally tell mine. And so, so yeah, I think we, we, we still, we still got, got in there. But uh, <laughs> but it was rough after Moonlight. <laughs> it just seemed like we had Moonlight and then nothing. <laughs> and then we finally had Pose. Oh, Pose. I could talk to you about that all day. It's yeah. incredible. But let's talk about you because that's what we're here for. <laughs> One of the moments in your book that is going to stay with me a lot, actually, and I'm going to quote a lot, but I will make sure I credit you, is how as gay people and also in your case black people people will just turn to you and say look how far you've come look how far you've come but actually they should be saying look how long we stopped you getting here and yeah i don't know that just hit me because racism homophobia they continue to exist beyond civil rights or equal marriage how do we continue to keep that message going when people sort of act as though we've already got what we wanted and we should just sort of shut up and be grateful? Yeah, I mean, it's almost like we need to like, there needs to be a death of uh, a death of symbolism. Symbolic gestures and symbolic things, they don't really mean anything. Um, and they actually do more harm than good. We used to find joy in the first black to dot 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 even now we're still having like oh this is the first black person to shoot a cover of vogue magazine it's like vogue magazine has been around for 95 years this is the and i think the, the guy tyler um i'm not gonna remember his last name but the guy who shot beyonce's cover was like the first black person to shoot a cover this magazine has been around for almost a century so again at that point though you have to then be like this is not good like this actually is because there has been one woman running that magazine for 25 years. So that was a choice made, right? That was an active choice made. And we are not talking about the choice that was made to stop a black person from shooting cover. We're sitting here praising that we finally got one to shoot it. That's the problem with this, right? And so I always say like, if we are going to move forward, there has to be a death of symbolism. There has to be a death of Confederate statues, a death of the monuments, a death of buildings named after horrible people. I, I am fearful of the whole first person too, because I have a feeling because of how well the book is doing, because of who I am, how I identify, I'm gonna be one of those people, first non-binary person to win an Emmy, first non-binary person to do good. And it's like, I don't have a desire to be that and I'm going to refute it at all costs. My job is to not be the first, but to ensure that there's a second and a third. That is how I view it. And I think that is how you move forward. And that's a burden, that's a heavy burden 
on the person who, who was the first, right? Because that's not their job because they didn't, they're not the ones who denied the opportunity. But it then in many ways, it does become a little bit of our job to make sure that we are not the last, right? Holly Berry is still the only one. She is still the only one yeah. to have won an Oscar as a black woman for best actress. Whether it's Angela Bassett, it's Tina Turner, whether it's the people who they lost to, we do not remember. But we still remember them and their roles and the roles that they played. So that tells you that again, it's much more powerful than 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 the symbolic gesture of Holly Berry winning the award, right? How do we get to the second and the third and the fourth and the fifth? And that is where we have to start to do that work to move forward. I believed that in that moment, that when I said the door tonight has been opened. I believe that with every bone in my body that this was going to incite change because this door, this barrier had been broken. And to sit here almost 15 years later and knowing that another woman of color has not walked through that door is heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. That's Halle Berry there talking in 2017 about her historic Best Actress win at the Oscars in 2002. And we'll have more from George M. Johnson in just a moment. Talking of statues, did you see this uh, Dolly Parton thing that was floating around? It was a petition to take down all of the Confederate statues in Tennessee and replace them with Dolly Parton ones. And Dolly Parton said, you know, I think we're okay we got bigger fish to fry right now. Dolly Parton just has always been on it, very much like Jane Fonda, very much like, I mean, there are just some who just got it and have always understood it and understood what it means, how they, as white people, get to have a lot of power in the world and how they get to kind of help. I mean, I think Dolly Parton did like a lot of COVID relief. I mean, you could just like, when you just go through the history of what Dolly Parton has made sure that she has done to ensure that minorities you know, she has shared her privilege. She's done immense things to, to always like uplift other people and kind of like, no, like, I don't need that. We got too many other things going on for me to need that. But you don't see enough of that. You rarely see that type of that type of gesturing um, happening from people who have the power and the ability to, to actually make changes in people's existences and lives, right? So yeah, I, I thought it was, you know, I remember seeing it and I was like, that old Dolly Parton, she's still, <laughs> she's still, still always know the right things to say, <laughs> the right things to do at the right moment. <laughs> it's a lot of stuff that needs to be tore down before we already talk about what new stuff need to go up. There are still kids, black kids that are going to schools named after slave owners. It, it just, it, it just does not make sense. There's no other place in the world that does this. Literally, there is no, there is no Hitler high. There is no like, yeah. there is no Mussolini middle school that just does not exist. Those other countries, for some reason, were like, oh yeah, these were terrible people. Only in America, it was just January 6th, they are still running around with Confederate flags. It is the most ingrained thing that the world has ever seen. And it has just indoctrinated the amount of hatred and white supremacy that this country started on. It just continues to flow from generation to generation of these particular white people over here. Two unlikely friends take on the world. As a white privileged gay person, how can I be an ally to the black community? One, there's a fetishization issue. Oh God, like, yeah. You have white people white queer people who legit can be racist and also fetishize us at the, simultaneously. And I've seen it happen like in real time 
being fetishized while also arguing with a racist white queer. But you could tell they were looking at me, like the angrier I got, the hornier it made them. It was, you know what I mean? Like this whole, like the whole notion of like this super hyper sexual black being, right? And so like, we have a fetishization issue that it just has to be discussed, talked about. I think another thing is like making sure like black queer people feel safe in white queer spaces, because a lot of times we don't. A lot of times we know, like, if we get into an altercation with a white queer, we know who the police are going to believe. There, there's no, like, real full, all-out solidarity. I think white queer people are having to come to terms with the fact that for many, many years, they've ignored black queer plight. And so while white queer people, and especially in the U.S., like, while white queer people were fighting for marriage equality, black queer people were fighting to survive. And so that was like their main thing. We, we, we're gonna get this marriage because we deserve marriage. And it was like, yeah, we do, but like, we still have people dying from the HIV epidemic in the black community. Like, we actually need y'all to, to come and, and fix some of this stuff because somehow this is not a problem in your community, but still a problem in ours. And we know what the somehow is. So like, if you would like to be a better ally or advocate, it starts with you fixing some of the problems that you have seemingly been able to remove from your population, <laughs> but left on other populations of LGBTQ people. Um, so I, I always say that. And then I think like when we talk about like allyship and just advocacy for just black lives overall, I always say like, you know, at some point, like white people have to spend their privilege and they have to be willing to lose uh, some of the power. Well, I mean, you have to be willing to lose, not some, you have to be willing to lose power and you have to be willing to lose privilege and you have to be willing to, to even the playing field in a way where you can't be superior to another person. All these anti-racist books and all of these things keep coming out, but it's like, that's not going to do it. Simply not being a racist is not enough. It has to be substantial change and it has to be, closing wealth gaps. It has to look like other things. But I think that's when we talk macro, government, politics, people who have a lot of power to do those things. I think at least on a minor micro level, it's at least making sure that Black people feel safe. You know, a lot of white people who come to protest, they jump in front of Black people knowing that the police will not hit them. And that's kind of what it has, has to be. It has to be putting your body on the line in the same way that, that you know our bodies will be taken from us. Um, George, thanks so much for coming on our podcast. We'd love to have you back when your next book comes out. Absolutely. If that's okay um, with you. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Uh, thanks for listening, babes. Do the admin and support Gay and a Non-Gay. Visit gaynongay.com slash donate. <laughs>